This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I, declare, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all your descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering or the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Please pray with me. Uh, Gracious God, uh, this is your word. And you have uh, given it to us for our good. Uh, And you've given it to us in order to help us to understand you better. And you've given it to us to teach us how to lament. And so please, as we uh, spend time this morning considering the psalm, would you please uh, teach us how to lament? In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Uh, A challenge anytime that you get up to preach a sermon is what do you put in and what do you leave out? And I'll just tell you that this particular week, the pain of the things that I'm leaving out is real because there's so many things in this psalm 
that are, uh, that are just really profound and beautiful. Uh, the reality of the psalm and the reality of our world is that we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that suffers evil. We live in a world that suffers harm. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, right? We all know this. We all experience it in our own lives. We, we see it as people that we love uh, go through illness and suffering and catastrophe, injustices of all kinds. And anytime that we click on, uh, you know, log on to our favorite news outlet or watch the, who watches news TV on TV anymore? Those who still watch news on TV, um, you know, we see it. It's, it's just, it's ever present. And suffering is the term that perhaps we use most broadly to kind of as the catch-all of all the different things that are, uh, that are, that are, um, that we struggle with, right? It's all, it's all the category that we use, uh, in, in all of these things. And the tension that we have when we, uh, the tension that we have when we talk about suffering is, and we talk about any kind of injustice or sickness is that there is this, there's this narrative. There's this kind of thought process that just permeates. It's in the back of our mind. Maybe, maybe we wouldn't necessarily even, uh, say that we believe it, but it's just kind of back there in the back of your mind. And it, and it's, it's not new. It's something that we see in the old Testament. We see in the new Testament and it's this, right? If I'm basically a good person, then things are basically going to go okay, right? If I just, if I follow the rules, then life should be fine. Shouldn't have any problems, right? Maybe a, maybe a scraped knee, but like nothing serious, right? I don't smoke. I shouldn't get lung cancer. Uh, and, and the reality is that <clears throat> the part of the logic of scripture does say that following the way that God intended the world to work will often... Uh, lead to blessing, but that's not the logic of the world that we live in, uh, because we also know that in the world that we live in, that you can uh, suffer greatly uh, having nothing, done nothing wrong, and that our and that at the center of the Christian faith is the story of one who suffered horrendously. And was truly the one completely righteous individual that Jesus himself takes on our suffering. And so the story of scripture and what the Bible teaches us is that suffering is something that is woven into the way that we live in this world. It's not how things were created to be. It's not the original design of things. Uh, It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is a world in which there's no suffering. But in this particular time frame in which we live in, suffering is a part of what we do. And so kids, if you, if you have a test coming up or, or if you're going to play, let's say you got a soccer match coming up, right? Or, or a baseball, whatever. Um, If you have a test coming up, what do you do in order to get ready to take the test? So they're like, why did you use that one, right? If you've got a soccer match coming up, what do you do in order to prepare for the soccer match? You practice, right? You don't just sit there and play FIFA soccer on the computer, as great as that is, right? You get on the field and you practice. Suffering is one of the, um, I've been rereading over the last several weeks, uh, Tim Keller's book that he published is 10 years old now. It's a book, uh, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering. It's 10 years old. 
Uh, I'm rereading it again. Just finished it last night. Uh, And he talks about the fact that one of the images that scripture uses is that of a gymnasium. That when we're in times of pain and suffering, that is the gymnasium that God puts us in in order to strengthen our faith. And so in a very real sense, what we have to do, whether it's preparing for a test or preparing for a soccer match or getting ready for a project at work, right? There's this preparation that has to happen on the front end so that when we're taking the test, so that we're in the game, when we're in those periods of suffering, we're able to do things well. And so kids, I'm I'm, I'm especially highlighting you here because I've not... It just occurred to me this past week that I've not said this, right? Suffering is not something only for adults, right? You will suffer too. That's the reality of our world is that adults and kids suffer. Suffering is indiscriminate in that sense. Uh, And so we need to be able to do the work of preparing ourselves. Parents, you have the, the responsibility of helping your kids to do the work of preparing them for those times when life comes off the rails and things are not going the way that we thought that they should go. Um, and so that's what Psalm 22 is partly is doing for us. Psalm 22 is helping us to get ready for this kind of suffering. Uh, so we're going to do the same thing that we've been doing each week. Three points that we're going to look at. Same three points. We're going to look, first of all, at how the psalm teaches us to trust in God. Secondly, the lament that it brings. And then finally, how it turns us back to hope in God after the lament. Um, All right, so first of all, trusting in God. Pop quiz. See how you do. Um, What are the two things that we've seen so far that the psalms teach us when we're getting ready to trust in God, we're getting ready to bring our lament. We spend time reflecting on what two things about God, his character, yes, and his actions. It's 50. It's 50. It's not bad. It's an F in most schools, but here it's a passing grade. Um, So his character and his actions. Now, I have repeated this every week, every week. Why do you think I've repeated this every week? Because it's important, right? This is like praying 101. I remember sitting in a class in seminary a really long time ago now. Uh, It was a prayer class. It was early in the morning. And I remember our professor talking about the importance of relying and meditating on God's character and his past actions. And it was like the light went off. I was like, oh my gosh, why had I never been taught this before? And that has been probably one of those things that I learned a long time ago that has borne the most fruit in my prayer life over the years. This is really, it's so basic, but I keep repeating it because I want you to hear it. We see it yet again here in Psalm 22. But what's really fascinating about Psalm 22 is that, that David is, um, he's, he's almost like he's arguing with himself at the beginning of the psalm. Right? The psalm begins in verse one My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verses three to five, we have the next slide that shows the, 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 the back and forth. Um, verses one and two My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verses three through five You're enthroned in heaven. Your, our ancestors cried out to you and they were saved. Verses six and eight I am scorned, I am despised. People are mocking me. Verses 9 and 11, from the womb, I have trusted you. So there's this like, almost like back and forth that's happening. 
And that's indicative, isn't it, of a lot of times when we're in suffering? I'm, I'm trusting, I'm trusting. Why are you forsaking me? I'm trusting, I'm trusting. Oh, why is it that this is happening? And that's really indicative of how many of us, all of us, experience times of deep suffering and struggle. And what happens with the psalm is that it jumps in, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? There is no rest. There is no response. There is no respite, verse 2 says. Now, if you have your Bible open, and you should, if you have your Bible open, um, look at verse 3. Yes, verse 3. In verse 3 and in verse 9, there's this little word, three letters, super important. If you have the NIV or the ESV, and I think the New American Standard, it's the word yet. If you have a King James or New King James, different three-letter word, but... Okay, when the psalm is moving in one direction, then it says, yet... That's like a big sign. Are you paying attention? Things are about to change. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet, I, you are enthroned in heaven. Here he is. He's jumped in. My God, my God. But then he immediately, after his initial lament, the psalm shifts and starts talking about who God is. You are enthroned in heaven. So God is a... If you're enthroned in heaven, what are you? You're a king, right? He says then in verses, uh, also in verses three to five, um, there, notice in four and five, there's this, in the NIV anyway, there's this really interesting back and forth. Trust delivered, saved trust. By the way, when you're reading the Psalms, you want to pay attention to the repetition of things. The repetition is there for a reason. Right? So what if if you are if you can trust in God that He is a deliverer and a savior, that's telling you something else about his character. And he says at the end of verse five that um, he's asking, please don't let me be put to shame. That's an interesting word. Uh, if you go to the ESV, it's translated disappointed. If you go to the new the King James, it's translated confounded. What do you think he's trying to get at? It's, a, it's the, literally the next thing he's going to talk about in verses 6 to 8, right? People are mocking him for trusting in God, and he doesn't want to be disappointed. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. Have you ever had that experience, right, when you're trusting in somebody to do something, and they fail you, and you feel like, oh, how could I have been so stupid to have trusted this person? You know what I'm talking about? That's what David's wrestling with here. God, don't let me be disappointed in you. Don't prove them right. And then we have a second yet in verse nine. So then six to eight, you've got this, you know, these people are mocking me. They're taunting me. We're going to look at that in a second. Uh, And then verse nine, yet, another yet. From the time that I was in the womb, you have been working in my life. Kids, you listen to this? From the time that David was a baby, God was working in his life. Um, Taking your faith seriously, being engaged in your faith is not something to hold off and do when you're an adult. 
right? It is something that we need to begin to do now. Adults, right? We can do the same thing. Oh, I'll, I'll get more serious about my faith next year, next month, later, when this happens, when that happens. Uh, we all can face the temptation of saying, oh, I, yeah, I know I need to be more serious about my faith. I need to be more intentional with whatever spiritual disciplines I'm, I want to pursue or I feel like I need to do. I need to be more intentional in reading the Bible and knowing the story of scripture, but I'll do it later. And David is saying, no, that's actually really a, a stupid idea, <laughs> right? From the time that he was a child and notice the implication later in the passage in verses 22 and 23, I think it was, where he's talking about the descendants, right? The, the Christian faith is a faith of generations, uh, it's a faith where one generation tells the next generation and that generation tells the next generation. We saw that two weeks ago, I think it was, when we were looking at, I don't remember the Psalm we were looking I think it was Psalm 13 maybe. Um, so you see like this there's, this, there's this really important assumption that he's making. And just a little, little quick side note, I'm not gonna dwell on this at all, but just simply to look, give a little nod to it. Uh, what you see here, anytime that you see uh, passages of scripture that acknowledge God's working with our children, uh, those are all part of the passages, part of that, so the theme of the Bible that our church points to, to talk about why we believe that our children should have the sign of baptism put on them because we believe that God works through generations and that, that that's a part of faithfully trying to apply what it is that we're looking at. All right, that's a little sidebar, moving on. Um, so when we're praying, right, there's this back and forth. Uh, and what we want to do is, especially in these moments where you feel like you're praying, you're praying, you're praying, and it's just silence. What's the temptation, right? It's to give up. Anybody? Right? You're praying, you're praying, you're praying. Nothing's coming back, right? You're reading the Bible. It's, it's like it's dead. Um, there's a pastor who lived in the 1600s uh, in the city of um, Geneva. His name is John Calvin, and he wrote a, a, a book on the Psalms, uh, kind of explaining what the Psalms are. Uh, and this is what he says. He says, the, I'll just paraphrase it. He says, uh, when you pray and pray and pray, um, and you're beating the air to no purpose for a really long time, whatever you do, don't quit. Keep going. Uh, there's something even in that continually praying that is really important for our development of faith. So that's the first part, trusting in God, right? It's, it, there's a ton there and there's a ton I didn't say. Let's look at the lament. The lament is the first 18 verses, 22 verses, depending on how you look at the psalm is all lament. It's interspersed with these moments of praise, but the whole thing, it starts off, why have you forsaken me? What, what's going on? And there are so many different things that we can look at, but what I want to do this morning with us is there are two temptations that, that David is confronting that I think are important for us to look at together this morning. Two, just two small temptations, well, not they're not small temptations, but two, two things that we're going to look at. First of all, when we are suffering, 
we can be tempted to believe that uh, uh, whether or not God is present. So suffering makes us question God's presence in our lives. That's, that's the beginning of the psalm, right? Forsaken means you've, you're not around. Forsaken means you've abandoned me. You've left me to myself, right? That's what the whole, that's what the term means. He says in verse 11, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there's no one to help. That trouble is close and you are far. What gives? What's, what's going on here? That, so you see that the, the temptation is to believe that God is really, really far away. And what's the second part of the temptation? It's not only that God is far away, but what else? No one is near. Suffering, part of the evil of suffering is that it makes us believe the lie that we are alone. That we are alone because God is far away and that we are alone because there's not people around us. And one of the insidious ways that that works is by making us believe that no one really understands my suffering. Now, I want to be really nuanced here, okay? Well, let's please hang with me. It is true that my suffering, because of my culture, because of my background, because of my gender, because of my education, because of whatever, right, will, will in some ways be different than, I'll pick Jen because Jen's the one that prayed, right? So my suffering, we, Jen and I could have the same and confront the same uh, experience. Let's say it's cancer, Right? But because of any host of different things, there will be ways in which my suffering and her suffering will be unique from one another. However, what can happen is that we can press the, the difference so much that then we say, well, you don't, you can't help me. You don't understand. Right? And what we're doing is we're believing the lie that suffering isolates us. Because there are realities that there are many ways in which suffering, regardless of the particularities of the individual, there's a lot of commonality that we all experience when we are entering into times of suffering. And so the challenge for us as a community is to get really practical, right? When, whenever we are suffering, the challenge for us as the sufferer is to not allow ourselves to believe the lies that say you are alone, right? Uh, And so suffering wants to pull you into isolation. And what we need to do is we need to push towards community. And I'm using those words really intentionally because pushing means it takes effort, right? Uh, And so in suffering, we want to push towards community. And so that means that we have to we have to push aside a narrative that any any narrative that leads us to say you don't understand, right? Because that is necessarily putting up walls that make it harder for us to have community around us. At the same time, at the same time, if we are the one that's coming in to provide support for a friend or family member who is suffering, then we come in with a posture of saying I don't understand what you're going through. Right? I don't want to presume that I know everything in your particular experience. I want to listen. I want to understand the difference 
and be able to come alongside you and provide you with the kind of support that you need. That's the first thing, right? Suffering makes us believe that we are alone and David is struggling with this and the teaching of scriptures, you're not alone. You're not alone. The God of heaven and earth is with you. We're going to see that in a second, but he has put you in the context of a church. He's put you in the context of families and understanding that at times that those are the places that are causing the suffering. So that Yes, I understand that. That aside for a moment, God has put all of us, uh, God is, well, the reality is there are some of us that don't have that. And that's a, that's a horrible thing, right? Uh, but God has placed most of us in the context of communities uh, that, sh- that even if it may not be perfect, are striving to care. The second thing, the second temptation that we might face in times of suffering is that God has no plan. Right, we see that in verse tw- in verse eight. Right, the people are mocking him; they're taunting him. He says he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. What's implicit is the Lord is not going to rescue you. The Lord's plan for you is a bad plan. Uh, and so, what's the? Um, and this is. I mean, I hear this all the time. I was having a conversation with somebody. Let's say it was in the last month. Uh, where I was having a conversation with somebody who's a part of our church and they were relaying to me a situation that they're facing. Uh, And as they're facing this situation, the question was, I don't understand why this is happening. And really at the, like when we like parsed it out, when we like tried to like talk through it really is the end of the day, it's like, I don't understand God's plan. Like, why are these particular things happening? And the reality is that we're not always given that information. We have a whole book of the Bible, the book of Job, which is one, how many chapters is Job? It's a lot of chapters. Um, 40, 42, 42 chapters of an extended meditation on suffering and you don't get an answer. Uh, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. Now, um, I would imagine if you've grown up in the church that uh, you've probably uh, seen this verse. Maybe you saw it's cross-stitched somewhere in this really like beautiful cross-stitch. Maybe I'm dating myself or uh, or at least I'm regionally positioning myself as being from the South. Um, For I know the plans. You know this verse? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Do you know it? Plans to... Yes, you know this. We're prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. It's, it's a beautiful verse. Do you know why God had to say that? What was that? Yeah, part of it is because people don't believe it, but, but there was actually a particular situation that happened that necessitated God saying those words. Yeah, yeah. So exile. Oh, that sounds. But exile is like a is a is a, that's a Bible word. I want you to I want you to picture I want you to picture a Ukrainian family that has had to flee their city. Their city has been bombed to the ground by the Russians, and they've they've had to walk across Ukraine in the winter with just a couple of suitcases. And now let's say they're somewhere in Europe. Let's say that they're in Germany. And they're like, what on earth are these people saying? Because German is a hard language, right? Uh, What are these people saying? What are they eating? 
what on earth happened? And God's saying to you in the midst of that, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I want you to imagine that you are live in southern Turkey or northern Syria and that a hur- uh, not hurricane, I'm sorry, an earthquake comes and demolishes your city. Have you seen the before and after pictures? It's, I don't even have a category for the before and after pictures of just how utterly devastated some of these cities are. And so that now you are somewhere else and you're living in a refugee camp. Um, actually, technically, I don't think it would be a refugee camp. It would be, some, but I don't know what it would be called. You're living in a camp, right? There, and, and you are, and you have like none of the, your family, family members have died. And a, and a prophet comes in and says to you, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I was talking to Faye right before uh, the service. She gave me this book to read, When Stars, when stars Are Scattered. It's the story of two little boys in a refugee camp in Nigeria. I think it's Nigeria. Um, and it's the story. Their parents have been killed. Uh, and there, and the, the way the story goes is they end up in the United States, right? Far away from anything that they know. And, and God says to them, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. You get it? Jerusalem was destroyed. They, they are, their exiles is a really nice way of saying that they are prisoners of war living in another country. That the brightest of their people are being assimilated into Babylonian culture and that there's a systemic program designed to eradicate their Jewish culture out of them. That the Babylonians are systematically trying to wipe the civilization off the face of the earth. That's what exile means for a Jew. In a word, suffering. And it is to that people and we could go on, right? Like that, that, I just gave you three examples, right? We could talk, we could talk about uh, Iran. We can talk about stuff happening in South America. We can talk about stuff happening in Cambodia and, and uh, Myanmar. Like we could go on and on and on and on. And God says, I have a plan. Now, do we know that plan? Do we know all the intricacies of that plan? No, because God also says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And so there just comes this point where we're just like, okay. Okay. I don't fully understand it, but I trust you. I trust you. And see, that's what's happening here. If David didn't trust the Lord, Psalm 22 would not exist. See, as a Christian, suffering, this is the tension that we have, right? So, so often in our, in our culture, especially in our culture today, this has not always been the case, but in our culture today, suffering, extreme suffering is presented as a reason not to believe in God. But the logic of scripture runs in the opposite direction. The logic of scripture says it is precisely because there is suffering in this world 
that belief in God is so important. Why? Let's see why. Let's look at the hope. Verse 22, the psalm shifts. It's a pretty abrupt shift. In fact, some have even suggested that Psalm 22 was originally two psalms that somebody edited to put together. Uh, Regardless of whether or not that's the case for us, Psalm 22 is Psalm 22. It is one passage. And so we read it together as one text. And in verse 24, it says this, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. David's hope as he's bringing this lament is that him being the afflicted one, this is true for you and me, right? As we're we're gonna see here in a second, that when we are the afflicted one, that we can have confidence that God will, will listen, that he will hear. That's why Psalm 22 exists, right? I'm bringing you this lament because I actually think you care. Um, Now, how do you and I take Psalm 22? Because we're not David. Um, How do you and I take Psalm 22 and appropriate? How do we take the Psalm and apply it to ourselves? Um, Now, I've left this for the end, right? Uh, Where have you heard these words before? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? So you hear those words and probably if you grew up in the church or if you've been around Christianity for any period of time, for you, those words are the words of Jesus on the cross. Right? So you see, what happens is that Jesus knew his Bible. Uh, Jesus, from the time that he was a little boy, this is what I said before, right? Don't, you don't, we don't wait and say, oh, faith, that's important but I'll get to it when I'm older. No, from the time that Jesus was a little boy, his faith was very important to him. It was important to Joseph and Mary to disciple him so that he would grow up to know these things. And so Jesus more than likely would have not just had Psalm 22 memorized, but he would have had lots of Psalms memorized. And so he's here on the cross and what's he doing? He's suffering and what's he doing? He's talking to himself, he's praying to God, and he's using what to do it? He's using scripture. He's using the Bible. He's using these stories and these poetry that God has provided. And And he's saying, I am now like David on this cross. Go back and read it. And this is the stuff that I don't have time to do today, okay? Go back and read it and think of the story of Jesus. And you'll be like, oh, oh. Oh, and you just see again and again and again, all of the different ways. When, when you and I feel that God has turned away and that his presence is not near, we, we can remember that Jesus cried these words on the cross for you and me. When, when we are tempted to believe that God has no plan and that our suffering is indiscriminate, we can remember that God's plan was that Jesus would suffer on the cross for you and me. So that, so that at the heart of the Christian faith is that we believe in a God who is not divorced from suffering, who's not far away from suffering. We believe in a God who took on flesh like you and I and suffered in a variety of different ways 
throughout his life. He was tempted in a variety of different ways like we are. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was condemned. He was judged. He was called an illegitimate child. And then he hung naked on a couple of wooden beams and people hurled all kinds of nasty things at him, words, and he died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? So, so he really is the one that cries these words and he did it for you and me. But Jesus not only prayed the first part of Psalm 22, he also prays the second part of Psalm 22. Now he doesn't literally quote the second part of Psalm 22 on the cross, but he does say something on the cross that is a very clear delineation, very clear marker that says, I won. What does he say? It is finished. He says it is finished. And by saying it is finished, he is declaring beyond a shadow of a doubt. His plan has been accomplished. And so you and I, when you, um, this is, I told you, I've been reading um, Tim Keller's book, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering. I, I read this last night. I was like, oh my goodness. When you suffer without relief, when you feel absolutely alone, you can know that because he bore your sin, he will be with you. You can know you're walking the same path Jesus walked. So you are not alone. And that path is only taking you to him. That's that's our hope whatever the suffering might be and as hard as it might be, and I don't don't want to uh, minimize in any way, shape or form the reality that when we are in times of suffering, it is hard. The devil wants you to believe more than anything that you're alone and that this is completely purposeless. And Jesus, through Psalm 22, speaks to you and says, you are not alone. In fact, not only are you not alone, I went before you. I suffered for you. I've suffered for you so that you can rest beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only are you not alone today, but you won't be alone in the future. Not my plan isn't just a plan for you for today. My plan is a plan for you for the future. How do we know that? How does Psalm 22 tell us that? Because if you read the end of Psalm 22, what you have is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. What you have at the end of Psalm 22 is a picture of of young and old. You have a picture of rich and poor. You have a picture of all these people gathered together around the throne, worshiping the king. That's straight out. I mean, like, I, I, I'm pretty darn sure that when John was writing those words at the, as he's wrapping up the book of Revelation, that in the back of his mind is Psalm 22. You're not alone. That's our hope. You're not alone. It's not meaningless. There's a purpose. 
And so the application for us is that we need to strive to be the kind of community that walks with one another through suffering. But in order to do that, we need to have these these stories and these passages of scripture deeply ingrained in our heart so that we can be wise with our words and compassionate with our understanding. All right, let's pray.